from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. There are about 700,000 people living in Washington, D.C. According to sources who know, there are more than 10,000 spies in Washington. That means one in every 70 people you cross paths with in Washington is likely a spy. So who are they? What are they after? I want to know what the president of the United States, I want to know what he has under his table, what, what he's hiding from me. How do they do it and can they be caught? You could operate right here in Washington, D.C. And if you're good and you're disciplined and careful, the FBI will never see it. There is a place in Washington you can go to find out all the answers to those questions and more than you ever imagined about spies. And the details are coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. The secretive world of spying, it's right here in front of us. But because of their training and our naivete as average citizens, we often miss it. Everybody in the espionage business is working undercover. So if they're in Washington, they're either in an embassy or they're a businessman. And you can't tell them apart because they never acknowledge what they're doing. And if they're good, they're, they have no trace of their communications. And while we often unknowingly stumble over spies because we don't know what we're looking for, they, on the other hand, are very clear about what they're looking for. And it's not always the obvious. In fact, as the late Sergei Trechikov, Russia's top spy who defected to the U.S., said to me before he died in 2010, their orders from President Boris Yeltsin were quite clear when it came to spying on President Bill Clinton. Yeltsin formulated it in a very clumsy, in a very provincial, but in a very accurate way. I want to know what the president of the United States, in his time it was Clinton, I don't, I am not interested what he has on his table. I want to know what he has under his table, what, what he's hiding from me. In the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, the Cold War and its immediate aftermath drove much of the espionage activity aimed at the U.S. and the U.S.'s enemies. As former CIA director Michael Hayden once told me, they were not hiding because they knew the U.S. had a problem. I'm old enough to remember that other war, that Cold War thing. And there we had an enemy that was easy to find. You, you knew where those echelon tank armies were in, in Eastern Europe. He was hard to kill. The tactics of the U.S.'s two biggest enemies have changed. But Douglas Wise, former deputy director of the Defense Intelligence Agency and a former Central Intelligence Agency senior officer, says... The objective 
is still the same. The Russians want to destroy us. The Chinese want to own us. Both Russia and China have raised the number of operatives here in Washington. And according to Bayer, it would be virtually impossible to pick them out. The dark net and various private, you know, encryption, you know, algorithms and the rest of it, you could operate right here in Washington, D.C. And if you're good and you're disciplined and careful, the FBI will never see it. Word on the DL. There are more than 10,000 spies in Washington. Let me tell you a secret. I've seen things you can't imagine. The men in my life always disappear. My death will be covered up. I know things I wish I didn't. I've saved lives and ruined reputations. I've been hunted. Interrogated. And escaped certain death. Yet I'm prepared to take my life at any given second. I've single-handedly won wars. Yet no one knows I exist. I'm not who you think I am. The world of espionage is a whole different way of life from what ordinary people live. And it's hard to imagine that life. But the International Spy Museum here in Washington, D.C. has taken on the challenge of demystifying the world of spying and everything related to it. The important part of it is to be able to share the world with our community the American citizen. When I was with the National Security Agency during the Korean conflict, I began to realize that the American public really had very little knowledge of what intelligence was all about. Milton Maltz is the founding chairman of the International Spy Museum, and he says the history of spying goes back a lot further than we think. We're sitting here in a room with George Washington reading a document. I happened to was a, I was able to purchase that document years ago, and this was the beginning of when Washington formed the first intelligence organization. And that ring was well ahead of its time from a tactical point of view and from a gender point of view as well. The Culper Ring, made up of six individuals. One of them was a woman. The British captured her, brought her aboard one of their battleships, where she died. But she did not die in vain. As Maltz pointed out, what Washington and the Culper Ring were able to achieve turned the world order upside down. I'll go back if I may. George Washington is one thing. King George III is another. He was absolutely livid that this ragtag, quote, ragtag army defeated the world's greatest army. And we did. And how did it happen? He called in one of his top generals and said, how in the world could you have lost? And he said, Washington did not defeat us militarily. He simply outspied us. Washington, D.C. is full of museums, but there is no other quite like this one. 
And they often tell stories based on narratives or scripted exhibits. But the International Spy Museum is unique because this museum lets the exhibit dictate the script. Some of the stories that we we told were determined by the artifacts that we had. We were lucky enough to get a giant donation from H. Keith Melton. And what we found was we had some superb exhibits from an amazing story, some amazing stories. Dr. Alexis Aldi, the lead curator at the museum. One of those items is genuine from the period just before the Cold War. We actually have the ice axe that was used to assassinate um, Leon Trotsky in 1940 in Mexico. So, um, of course, we're going to tell that story. I mean, we just built some of these stories around the extraordinary artifacts that we had. I would say it's important to the world intelligence community because we focus on telling responsibly stories from across the globe. Chris Costa, the executive director at the Spy Museum, and he says while they do tell the stories that champion and in some cases vilify the intelligence community, they're not beholden to that community. We don't answer to the U.S. intelligence community. We answer to no intelligence community. We want to lay out the facts and pose questions that we don't always answer. We want to be provocative. We want to educate the public on this kind of work. And I think the service, though, we do provide by definition to to this world community is we tell the stories that the average intelligence officer can't tell their family. We do that. So it's a great opportunity for an intelligence officer to walk somebody through the museum and then ask that open-ended question, well, what did you think of those stories? Hollywood and the global entertainment community play a huge role in telling the stories of spies. And of course, there are creative embellishments to sell the stories and the movies to the public. But the real stories from the real spies need no embellishment to leave those lucky enough to hear those stories in awe. One time I had to mail a letter to an agent uh, and mail it without the opposition knowing it. Former CIA spy Mark Kelton behind the Iron Curtain. It was uh, January, very, very cold, uh, below zero. And uh, after a long route to try to ensure that there was no one behind me, I got to the, uh, to the place where I was supposed to mail it. But, you know, the, the fear, of course, of getting caught, I was actually sweating. It was, it was, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, it was well below zero, but sweating because of the concern. Um, I, my hands were so cold, I, I opened the letterbox, uh, went to slip the letter inside, and it dropped with a clang, and all it, the, the letterbox itself dropped with a, dropped with a clang. Wow. And, and I looked up and down, it was a vacant street, wondering if anybody had heard me. I remember, th- I'll remember that till the, uh, till the day I die. The stories, the artifacts, and the presentation have made this one of the most popular museums in the world. There have been nine million visitors in more than 14 years. The largest collection of international espionage artifacts is on display. It's the only public museum in the U.S. solely dedicated to espionage. But the effort to collect, 
analyze and display all of those artifacts and stories is Herculean, to say the least. In the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, I ran advertisements all over the world. And with a simple thing, that I wanted to, to obtain and preserve key artifacts pertaining to intelligence. H. Heath Melton is a founding board member of the Spy Museum, and he's donated the largest private collection of espionage artifacts in the world to the museum. More than 5,000 pieces, most of which have never been seen by the general public. So how do you declare to an airline security that you want to bring back the necessary ingredient for an atomic bomb on a commercial airline flight? And Melton has gone to more than 20 countries over 45 years in search of spy objects that underscore the critical role of intelligence on the world stage. You can't make up some of the things that really happened in history. And where the daring and excitement and things of fictional novels, the real world doesn't often end as nicely. And what the museum does is instead of presenting a nicely packaged ending or beginning, what it does is gives the visitor a true sense of reality. When the world needed it most, Kennedy and Khrushchev found common ground. But the world was just one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. Walking through the awe-inspiring glass and steel corridors of the Spy Museum, H. Keith Melton himself was found holding court about the exhibits that he's donated. The largest item artifact I've contributed is the one-man Sleeping Beauty submarine, which is the smallest operational spy submarine used in World War II we have on display. The smallest is the original microdot, and a microdot is the reduction of a page of text to a piece of celluloid less than one millimeter. And it's often been said, there are few things under the sun that are new, and it turns out the microdot is one of them. And it was supposedly the great secret of World War II, but actually it had been developed 100 years earlier. And the world's first microdot was developed in 1852 by Jonathan Benjamin Dancer. And we have his original microdot here on display. It had been used during the American Civil War to communicate from Richmond to Ottawa by the Confederates, but then forgotten about. And the Germans remembered it in the late 1930s, and it became the secret of Nazi covert communications during World War II. In fact, in 1946, J. Edgar Hoover wrote this amazing article for Reader's Digest that says how the FBI broke the German secret communications. They discovered the microdot without himself knowing that it had been a parlor novelty in 1852, and we'd just forgotten about it. The goals of spying don't change. What changes is the technology that enabled them to take place. So goals continue. We want secret information without the other guys knowing they've lost it. But how you get it is always going to be evolving as technology evolves. What is it that you want the people that come to the museum to see these exhibits? What is it that you want them to get and to go away from here with? I hope people, when they visit, will 
have a glimpse and see the essential role of intelligence that it plays in national security. Hope that they'll see that it is not a perfect process. There's successes and there's failures. And at the museum, we've tried to take a very balanced approach and show both successes and failures in a way and let people make up their own mind. But it is essential. And uh, hopefully they'll lastly find that the truth about history is far more interested in fiction. Uh, what James Bond did is nothing compared to what the real spies would do. And I often say that in the real world, James Bond wouldn't last four minutes. We simply do everything other than what he did. <laughs> in the James Bond movies, they're kind of about seduction and assassination, where the real world's about secret information and how you can communicate it and use it to help a government or help make better decisions. That's right. You can't get any information if they're dead. You know, dead spies don't really... Intelligence services, that's not their purpose. Though uh, one service, the Russians, the Soviets, the KGB, used assassination as a regular tool. But surprisingly, it was more for vanity. Seldom to influence national policy. More because they wanted to stop people from speaking ill of a leader, or uh, they wanted Stalin wanted to stop his critics. But it was never to change the, the fate of nations, just to stop people from talking bad about me. Uh, the the purpose of intelligence services is not assassinations. And Melton made very clear when you look at the reality and the objective of intelligence gathering, killing a target is really not what you want to do, even though some do do it. But he suggested there are other ways around that to get what you need. Well, you know, good services, and there are some very good ones, understand that the ability to... Uh, I, I asked once uh, General Oleg Kalugin, mm. who is on our board of directors, and I said, Oleg, what was your purpose when you visited the U.S.? Because he was here undercover as a student at, at Columbia and then at the embassy. He said... Keith, he says, I'm just here to make friends. I want to go out and make as many friends with Americans as I could. He's engaging, outgoing, sit down and buy you a beer and then talk about how our countries could be closer together. And the next thing you know, you're kind of an unwitting source in providing him information. It may not be classified information, but that's he establishes relationships. And that's what good intelligence officers do. They make relationships and ultimately, if they if you have access to secrets, they look for a way to, to hopefully get you to provide them. And strolling through this museum, surrounded by the images, movies, and voices of the history of espionage, Let me take you back it's clear one of the tried and true methods of dislodging secrets from a target is a disguise. And in this museum is a display that pays homage to one of the best there's ever been, Jana Mendez, former chief of disguise for the CIA. In terms of disguises, we did everything from the simplest disguise that you can imagine to the most complex. One of them is on display here at the museum. Uh, the complex one was a mask. It was an animated mask. That meant that it talked. It uh, smiled. And I briefed the president of the United States in the Oval Office wearing that mask. Who was the president at the time? It was George H.W. Bush. What did he say? <laughs> I showed him a picture of himself in an old disguise because he had been director of CIA. I said, well, we've come a long distance. I'm here to show you the latest. And he said, so show me. 
And I said, so you're looking at it. Now I'm going to take it off. He said, no, no, don't take it off. And he got up and walked around. Then he went back, sat at his desk. He said, okay. He took it off. John Sununu was over here. He's making his notes. To your left, yes. He was next. He almost, he wasn't listening. He almost fell out of his chair. <laughs> White House photographer was there. When I got done, I went out to the secretary's office, played with Millie's puppies, and the photographer came out. She had been in the room, ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. She said, what did you do? I said, I can't tell you. It's classified. <laughs> Perfect. Ten, Sounds- ten years later, somebody sent me a, a, a photo uh, I'm holding the mask up in the air in front of the president's desk. The mask is airbrushed out. So it looks like I'm <laughs> lecturing the president. It's a very funny, funny picture. So tell me about your contribution here to the museum. You know, when my husband and I started at the very beginning, we, we worked for three years before the first museum opened. Mr. Maltz had a vision. He had, he had the money to execute it. He had a historian. He had artifacts. He had people that specialized in exhibits. He had museum people, but he didn't have any spies. And so Tony and I came in to help organize how would you, how would you tell this story? Uh, how would people flow through the museum? Um, how to put it together to, to a, a, an experience that that made some sense. Mm-hmm. That was how we started, mm-hmm. was just doing that. Okay. Uh, there's, the old museum had a, an air duct that went across the museum. It was, I remember it well. That was our idea. We said, you know, where kids can spy, uh, the idea of we had voices coming out of all kinds of odd places, like you could hear people talking. Uh, there were transparent places in the floor. We just did all kinds of stuff like that. Fun stuff. Make it, make it interesting, yeah. So, um, is there a favorite part of this museum for you? Well, there's an exhibit here to my husband, which is very dear to my heart. It was uh, based on that Argo story, the rescue of six diplomats from Tehran. You heard Jana mention the six diplomats from that Argo story. That Argo story was the story. 1979, November 4th, militants stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, taking 66 American hostages. In that chaos, six Americans managed to slip away and find refuge with the Canadian ambassador. Knowing that it's just a matter of time before they're found out and possibly executed, the government called on extractor Tony Mendez, who was Jana's husband, to rescue them. There is no shortage of riveting, dramatic stories like that throughout this museum. And Mendez says the real reason why she and her husband, Tony, who passed away earlier this year, participated in the museum was for the future generation. The educational part of it is really what attracted both of us. The, um, the idea that you can present to the American public and maybe to the young American generation um, the idea of, of serving your government and, and doing what is really honorable work. And while Mendez and many others are hopeful that the museum will inspire true interest amongst young people in the world of intelligence, there are others well-established in their own rights who feel the same sense of inspiration that young people get from seeing these exhibits, including the Spy Museum's president and COO, 
Tamara Christian. I feel like a kid in a candy store every day. So there are so many different stories I love, but our red teaming exercise that's led by former Deputy Director of the CIA, Mike Morrell, that tells the story of the Abbottabad complex and the night of the raid of Osama bin Laden. Let me take you back to spring 2011. I think is, I have probably done that activity, that interactive 10 times, and I can do it 100 more times. So that is one of my favorites in terms of the interactives. In terms of the artifacts, they really are, there are so many, it's hard to pick. But I really like the ghillie suit that was donated by Malcolm Nance, which would allow someone to, him to completely disappear in the sand. It's a really interesting artifact to look at. I think the suicide pen that would have been carried by U2 pilots um, is a really fascinating the tiniest of artifacts looks like a, a pen that you would have in a sewing kit. Um, so those are, go from uh, very big to very small. I like the story of the assassination of Trotsky, which happened in 1940 and was the crime of the century at that time. And we have the ice, ice axe. Yes, we have that. So that is a with still a little crust of blood on it to make it just a little more interesting. Real blood? Real blood. Wow. So. Okay. Let me tell you a secret. I'm not who you think I am. The International Spy Museum. Proving things are not what they seem. Special thanks to the museum for access to its facilities before they opened, and to the multimedia library, some of which was used in the production of this program. And thanks to you for listening. I appreciate, as always, your questions, comments, and suggestions. If you have any, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green. One word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. Green at WTOP.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's Tango Uniform Sierra Podcast on Twitter. And we've got a new thing going on. It's called Inside the Skiff. It's a new weekly national security email. Sign up at WTOP.com slash alerts. Coming up on our next episode, a special visit to the embassy of Pakistan. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, everybody. Check out The Charlie Kirk Show on Podcast One. The best-selling author, Twitter personality, and founder of Turning Point USA sits down with some of the biggest newsmakers of our time to bring you the inside scoop on Capitol Hill and so much more. Download new episodes of The Charlie Kirk Show every week on Apple Podcast and Podcast One. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.